Take a network break. This week, we're covering tech news from Cisco, Microsoft, Palo Alto, a new startup in the sonic space, and more. We're sponsored today by Juniper SD-WAN, driven by Mist AI. Juniper SD-WAN simplifies network deployments and operations with a scalable solution, an intuitive management platform, and enhanced visibility into end-user experiences. IT users can save time getting their network deployed and repairing issues faster than ever. Sign up today at juniper.net slash SD-WAN dash demo to see it in action for yourself. That's juniper.net slash SD-WAN dash demo. And then stay tuned for a Tech Bytes conversation with Live Action. Live Action provides network visibility and NDR products for network engineers. We're going to get an overview of Live Action's portfolio and take a closer look at new security capabilities in its threat eye network detection and response product. Uh, before we get into the news, we got an FU from a listener. Uh, they said they got a message from Equinex saying that Equinex is no longer going to do uh, copper cross connects anymore. They're going to uh, switch uh, entirely to single mode fiber. So, Greg, what was your take here? Oh, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting in the sense that cross connects uh, with your uh, in your in your data center or with your telco provider. Equinix is as in as a provider tends to focus on putting pops inside of hosting companies, mm-hmm. and then you connect to them, and then you have a fairly flexible way of connecting to. Uh, bandwidth from Equinix or any other number of providers. So if you want to interconnect with your favorite telco, Equinix can help you do that to some extent. It's it's quite a broad-ranging portfolio, but most people use Equinix as a long-haul provider, and they specialize in having basically software operator pops in data centers. Mm-hmm. And up until now, you've always been able to specify, I want to use copper or coax or, you know, and they'll bring a switch and put it in the top of the rack. And what they're saying here is that they're going to switch to single mode fiber completely. Now, this this makes sense to me, in some ways, although it's a little bit. I think for big companies like Equinix, they're standardising like this saves money for them. They sure. just have to provision one type of cabling, yep, um, one type of SFP, one type of switch, one type of monitoring. They don't have to support you know multiple types of SFPs and sig and face the signalling problems and, and multi mode fiber. And copper both have less reliability than single mode. They actually say in here that the speed and reliability and durability of SMF makes it the optimal choice. I'd actually agree with that. However, it's going to cost more up front. So I imagine there'll be more than a few customers. This is only for new connections, by the way. They're not going to go back and retrofit. Right. Um, but any new connection. So single mode fiber is more expensive than multi-mode or copper. And I know over the years I've talked about this, it just doesn't make sense um, generally to have all these different types. They made sense uh, once upon a time when the cost of an Ethernet port and the cost of fibre interfaces was phenomenally expensive. I remember like copper was, I don't know, $100 or $500 a port and fibre optic was 2000 5000 mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But these days... That differential is closed. Yeah. The flip side is, of course, is that SMF is still a few hundred dollars more expensive, maybe even up to 1000 and it uses more power in most cases than copper or MMF. So it's sort of sitting in the middle, but I think ultimately more choices leads to complexity, which ultimately leads to higher costs somewhere. Not necessarily the customer, <laughs> but higher costs won't be seen because the only thing most customers think about is the uh, purchase order. So we're gonna, I expect there'll be a lot of whining and complaining about it somewhere. Hey, I know I've had several customers confirm it. I did a tweet have, okay. this morning. Yeah, All yeah. Right. several people confirmed receiving the message. So yeah. Okay. 
Well, just a heads up and also a thank you uh, for the person writing in. You can always hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU if you have a comment, a correction, uh, or just want to reach out. Sure. Uh, let's dive into the news. There's a new startup making a go of Sonic Network OS, the startup called Hedgehog. And I'll give you a second to make that connection. Provides a supported version of Sonic that can run on a wide variety of platforms, including white box switches and smart NICs or DPUs. The company is also touting a Kubernetes-based fabric for automation and orchestration. Yeah, I actually thought the, the key message from the company was the Kubernetes-based fabric rather than the Sonic part. But a lot of the media outlets have actually picked up on the Sonic part. <laughs> Did you? Um, yeah, because I think, you know, Sonic is uh, sort of the, I, I don't, maybe darling's not the right word, but it's that uh, that uh, disaggregated NOS that's finally emerging sort of as the champion among all the choices that folks have had, uh, in part because of the backing of Microsoft and hyperscalers, there is a significant community building around Sonic. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of uptick in Sonic in the enterprise uh, and tier two, but I think uh the startup hedgehog thinks that the opportunity is there, but I, I, I agree with them. They're correct. The value proposition is not Sonic itself. It's the management and orchestration and automation capabilities that you can layer on top of it. And I think that's where mm. they're going to try to differentiate with this, you know, Kubernetes driven fabric. Yeah. So we did talk to them. They briefed us on the product a, a few weeks back before the launch was actually done. And, you know, the, their vision is is really down to automated fabric for Kubernetes done the Kubernetes way and designed to seamlessly work together with Kubernetes workloaded and application clusters. So that's very attractive to a certain group of people. Um, and so that means that not only are they using Sonic on the switch and they're really, what they're really selling is a Hedgehog fabric operator. So the fabric operator then integrates with a standard CNI, Calico, Cilium and so forth, so that you can actually get an, an advanced configuration. So you can actually configure the physical fabric as much as you can the logical fabric. And they did foresee in the future that they would be really into the DPU smart NIC type idea and leveraging that. And that way they, and I imagine that that would be more Sonic based as well. So they would be able to have policy functions, gateways and so forth actually hosted on DPUs as well as just on whatever is on the standard server NIC. So it's much more of a fabric pitch than just a Sonic pitch in my opinion. So I quite like it. Yeah, I think they are anticipating that uh, it's they're going to be handling distributed networks, uh, you know, network functions and security functions running in smart NICs on servers or at edge locations. And so you want that fabric that can extend from a data center mm. to across wherever it is, uh, and it needs to be extensible. And, uh, you know, I guess, and they're also betting on the popularity of Kubernetes as the underlay for uh, the operational software they'll put on top. Which makes sense, because if you're developing an application for edge today, you're most likely going to run it in a container. Uh, existing applications aren't going to reformat to fit into this model. Like you're not going to be able to use this to make a fabric like we see with Appstra or Cisco's data center network manager mm -hmm. uh, type tooling where they configure the physical network, but not so much the logical network. Right. They're taking a more logical approach where they're saying we want to give you the CI/CD GitOps type infrastructure policy as code, and the telemetry and logging and debugging is all built into that. So they're saying, so that's why I say it's much more about the fabric than the Sonic part. The fact that it uses Sonic is kind of here or there in the same way that say Juniper's Appstra says you can run it on Junos, you can run it on Sonic, you can run it on any vendor switch. The real value is in the the SDN tooling rather than what's actually happening in the physical layer anymore. 
Yeah. Again, I think what they're able to do is leverage the community that's developing around Sonic because it is an open source mm. that, you know, uh, you know, as Amazon or Microsoft or whoever who's using it in their giant data centers develops more capability on Sonic, they'll get to draft off that mm. uh, without necessarily having to do a lot of development themselves. They can provide that supported version. But again, yeah, the value proposition is at that higher fabric layer. Yeah. You know, buying Sonic doesn't solve my problem. Right. <laughs> you know, right. Exactly. Paying for a commercial version of Sonic isn't solving my problem. Yeah. It's just a commercial version of Sonic, you have to make it do something useful for me. And so in the same way that, you know, uh, Cisco's NXOS is now no longer a solution, it's they're always, you, you want a controller of some sort running over the top and whether it's ACI or DCNM, you know, or some other tool that you're going to use, uh, you know, Crossflow or something like that, then that's where mm-hmm. you're at. The, the operating system doesn't matter these days. Yeah. And I should note that, you know, uh, Hedgehog isn't the only one doing a, a supported version of Sonic. You can also get one from Dell Technologies. Uh, yeah. Dell selling Sonic as a thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, Dell does have a little bit of automation capability there. I think they're trying to help develop, but I presume yeah. Hedgehog is going to get more out in front of that. Although I have to say the Hedgehog site does not have a lot of detail at this point. <laughs> it does look like they forgot to do the website, doesn't it? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> they got the homepage and they need they to start filling it up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's a startup, so, you know, we'll give them time. Uh, links in the show notes if you want to find out more. We will move on. Uh, a couple of announcements uh, from C- Collaboration Land. First, Cisco and Microsoft are teaming to put Microsoft Teams on Cisco collaboration hardware, including video conferencing devices, smart boards, and video cameras. Uh, the Cisco devices will continue to support Cisco's own WebEx collaboration software, but Teams can be enabled by default. Yeah, it took me a while to sort of puzzle this out. Um, and uh, some people on Twitter, I made a comment on Twitter, what do you think? And I got some really useful feedback. Um, and basically it runs a line lines of um, what happens when two companies need to collaborate? And just because company A uses Zoom and company B uses Teams, how do they talk to each other? Who chooses uh-huh. to Zoom, you know, Teams, who chooses Zoom, right? Uh-huh. And if if you're one, somebody's got to give somewhere. So the day that, you can say we only use Teams, and if you want to talk to us, you have to use Teams. That's that isn't going to fly. And I think Cisco's realizing that it's a very distant third or fourth in the collaboration market. So uh, I saw some research recently saying that Teams is about a five point five to six billion ish in revenue. Zoom is a one to one point five, and Webex is sort of a one billion dollars worth of revenue. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you, I don't didn't get well, what GoToMeeting was or any of the others, but really Cisco, if it wants to survive, it needs to do something to partner with the other companies so that it can interoperate with them. Cisco can't be in a silo, I think. And so agreeing with to work with Microsoft to run Teams on its in-conference hardware gives them an opportunity to sell the hardware. Keep in mind that that hardware is a sunk cost. They've built it, they've manufactured it, they've right. done all the, you know, hardware development, bought the product. There's not that many customers, but there's a lot of Teams customers. So maybe what they could do is sell these, you know, WebEx room conferencing systems, which haven't been a super success. I mean, there's still enough people out there who want to say, book a meeting room so that they can do a web conference. Mm-hmm. It's a bit 19, you know, it's a bit it 2012 into yeah, me. But, it is, know. yeah. 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 Um, my take is that it is, I think, a mature and sensible move by Cisco. If you can't sell them WebEx, at least you can sell them some expensive conferencing gear. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, half a loaf is better than none for Cisco in this regard. You never know. They might be able to churn some customers over to WebEx and say, well, at least your system's already run it, you know. 
suppose, yeah, that's, there's also potential of backdoor, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's never one thing. These systems, you know, they're never doing it for just one reason. There'll always be multiple reasons for this sort of thing. But, you know, as uh, somebody replied to my tweet said, he said, well, you know, we use Teams, but when we conference with people, it's always Zoom or, or WebEx. And at the moment, we've got meeting rooms with all three in them. And having one would be better than, you know, having to make a choice. So that makes uh -huh. sense. It would put Cisco in a preeminent position to supply that hardware by saying, we can run whichever one you want us to run. Right. Yeah. Of course, the integration with WebEx is better and you would, you know. Sure, I'm sure Cisco would make that argument. But uh, yeah. I, I, again, <laughs> yes. I think it's very mature of them mm -hmm. to say, you know what, we understand we're not the only one. So yeah, you want to yeah. run Teams on our expensive smart board? Please do. Yeah, we'll take that. Yeah, we'll in fact, that if this person said the most important thing was this calendar integration. <laughs> Just so long as they can walk into the meeting room, click on the calendar and the exactly. meeting room. Exactly. That yes. was the thing that mattered. Now, all the rest of it, you could you could talk about whatever you like, but that's right. the only thing that matters as far as he was concerned. Exactly. So, <laughs> and my take on, you know, whatever platform is, if you're the one sending the invite, uh, putting it on my calendar, you, you pick whatever you want. If you're doing the effort to send me the invite, I don't care what platform. Just give me a link and I will show up. Well, I care what platform. I just want one that works. <laughs> you're, you're picky, I know. <laughs> I am picky, yeah. <laughs> uh, our second collaboration story, this one involves Microsoft and Meta. They're partnering to bring Microsoft products, including Teams, Office, and other software to Meta's Quest VR headsets. So now you can have your meetings in the metaverse. Yeah, or not, as the case may be. Um, I mean, I must say that the Meta uh, had an announcement this week. Facebook tried to make the pitch that they're making progress and people should be getting ready for it. And of course, having spent several billion dollars developing this so-called virtual reality technology that they're pitching as a verse, um, they really didn't get much positive press at all. I'll bet they're sort of back in the office with their tail between their legs, feeling a bit bit punchy. Um, I think that at the end of the day, um, right now, Facebook wants to say that the metaverse is a collaboration tool. And they see mm -hmm. corporate enterprises buying it as a way to have the ultimate video conferencing capability. And uh, I would say that that's not entirely stupid, given that if you want to charge $1,499 for a headset and it's got a battery life of one to two hours, probably not going to be successful. Um, so <laughs> I was reading a, a, a listening to a podcast where Zuckerberg talks about it and he says, well, the thing that I want you to know is that this is year one and nothing will be ready at least until year three. Right. Uh, so, okay, we'll stop talking about the metaverse now until 2024, maybe 2025, and then see what happens. And I think personally they should shut up as well and not try to get people excited, like hype it up. At the end of the day, they'll just look like the message will have burned off and the novelty will have gone and it, it will have started to become like you're, you're flogging a dead horse. Why are you bothering sort of thing? Like the most recent announcement from uh, Meta on their metaverse capabilities was that avatars can now have legs, which apparently yeah. <laughs> is a hard computing problem. But to the average person, it's like legs. That was hard. Legs, really? This is this yeah. is the this is the future. Uh, that's just it's not impressive. So yeah, they are. Yeah. I wrote a, I wrote about this in our recent Human Infrastructure magazine that at the outset. Uh, meta seems kind of foolish. Maybe in the long term, mm. it will actually turn into something interesting and compelling. There yeah. are reasons for that. But and right now, it doesn't look great. And I will say this partnership, virtual reality meetings seem like the least interesting use of this technology. But my assumption mm. is meta needs to explore all avenues to get VR into the mass market. And I think Microsoft has little to lose by taking a chance on it. Yeah, well, the Facebook has tripled down on the technology and so and basically bet the company on it. And 
they're going to be out there hyping it up endlessly. That's, you know, it's right. like asking a CEO how great their new product is. What do you think they're going to say? Right. right. It's terrific. So, <laughs> it's got I think legs. for Microsoft, there's, there's no downside here, right? Getting teams into that, that sure. platform makes sense. Very if little. it fails, it's like, oh, well, you know, we were just testing, see how it would work. And if it flies, they were one of the first people to be on board and they can run around exactly. bragging how clever they were. We help bring meetings into the modern age. That's it. So there's no downside for Microsoft. And, of course, Facebook uh, is desperate for attention for the platform. So, sure. And, again, like none of this is here today. It's all future. But if I was a collaboration company, would you be looking sideways at this and thinking, is this something that we should be doing? And the answer is I think most likely VR is most more likely to emerge out of a collaboration company than it is out of Facebook. I think I've said that several times before, so I'll reiterate that. I think some sort of virtual reality makes sense to Zoom and Teams and WebEx more than it does for a social media platform that harvests data and spams you with ads. Potentially, yeah. Mm. Uh, I, I, yeah, I just don't see meetings being a killer app for VR, though. I yeah. see this coming out in, in games I or education or some other enterprise area. And then into yeah. the mass market, not the other way around. Mm, I disagree. I think VR is going to be mass market first and then get into the enterprise. All right. We'll put that, we'll in put that on, the, <laughs> it's on the spreadsheet. <laughs> All right. Links in the show notes. Uh, Google and Intel have launched a new infrastructure processing unit, also known as a SmartNIC or DPU. Codename Mount Evans, the IPU is co-designed by Intel and Google. And like other devices, it's meant to offload networking and security functions from server CPUs while also allowing organizations to bring networking and security capabilities closer to workloads. Uh, the chip is officially called the E2000. It's going to be used in Google Cloud, but it's available for other organizations to purchase. Yeah, so Mount Evans is the project name inside of Intel for its data processing unit development program. It's been underway for a while, and we know that they've been out there and hired a lot of household names in the networking industry, like Nick McEwen and Guido Appenzeller and Rob Sherwood and and many, many more to make to to be a part of that project. And in this case, Intel and Google have basically announced that they've co-developed the product. It doesn't appear to be a complete co-development; it appears to be sort of partial. If you sort of read between the lines of the press release, um, I couldn't say completely, but I think for Intel, this is definitely a win. Um, one of the key things about silicon is the the fast, the more product you can sell, the more profit you can make. Because once you've designed the chip, you've sunk, you know, several hundred million dollars into building a, the silicon layouts and then going through the fabrication process. So mm -hmm. the only way to make money after that is to produce chips. And the more chips you can make, the faster you can ramp down the unit price. So having Google here, that gives them, well, a development partner, maybe even to share some of the development costs, certainly to help specify the product and get a product that's working, but also yeah. as a customer. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. Google needs to, yeah. So it needs to be, have a competitor, AWS Nitro, that, that capability that, uh, Amazon's invested heavily in for their servers and is giving them a competitive edge. Although it has to be said that Google's got a competitive edge in other parts. It's got a much more advanced hardware uh, silicon advantage in AI processing and in video transcoding compared to Amazon. That's why Twitch is having difficulties at the moment is because the AWS uh, transcoding systems aren't accelerated as well as Google's is. And that's why Google, YouTube streaming scales, but Twitch doesn't, as many Twitch streamers will love to tell me. Uh, so I think this is good. And um, also, of course, Intel gets marketing credibility by having Google and they can come down to mid-tier companies and say, well, if it's fine for Google, exactly. maybe you want this too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I will also note that the rise of these IPUs or DPUs is, again, another case that ties back to our earlier Sonic conversation that folks are doing a lot of investment in these smart NICs and they're going to need software to run on it. And Sonic is the case for that. Yeah, I think I don't. I don't think and DPUs are going to burst into the enterprise. There's not. There's so much leftover capacity. I think my understanding is that most enterprise servers are not heavily loaded. You can't put 250 VMs on a single server because if it blows up, the blast radius is enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, so dropping a DPU in might not be. You know, will give you the ability to run more VMs. That said, of course, if you put a DPU in and you can start to have a unified policy, that's very powerful. But I think the price per unit on DPUs will have to come down substantially for enterprises to be able to find the the ROI on that. Yeah, I think this is at the outset um, a hyperscaler and service provider yeah. telco play uh, before it hits enterprise, yeah. Yeah. So VMware's got Project Monterey and has announced DPU support, of course, in vSphere 8 and NSX. But I still suspect that's a fair way off in the in the future for enterprises. But still, we're watching the market emerge, and we talk about what's coming here on on network break. Not what's so. Don't try to focus so much on what's happening in the past. I will also say that Intel is doing some good fast following here. Uh, Nvidia has done a lot of work evangelizing this market, and until in a way gets to capitalize on the work that in, Nvidia is doing and talking about <laughs> DPUs and building a market case for this uh, technology. <laughs> yes, Captain Obvious entered the room. That would be another way of saying fast following. Yeah, okay. There's a, there's a good that's consultant term. <laughs> I'm going into for consultancy someday. Yes, I'll get the big bucks. <laughs> All right, a quick break for a message from uh, Juniper about its Juniper SD-WAN driven by Mist AI. Imagine if your network could recognize and support users and their applications, optimizing experiences and productivity. You can attend one of Juniper Network's live AI-driven SD-WAN demos to discover game-changing insights and automation from client to cloud. You can see how unprecedented session-based visibility and fine-grained application-aware session-smart routing brings huge benefits. Juniper SD-WAN simplifies network deployments and operations. It's a highly scalable solution with intuitive management platform and enhanced visibility into end-user experience so that IT users can save time getting their networks deployed and repairing network issues faster than ever before. Juniper provides a superior user experience with a session-oriented architecture that can reduce latency by up to 60%. Juniper users experience noticeable improvements to application performance and critical voice and video calls. And thanks to a unique tunnel-free architecture, customers can expect up to a 70, 75% reduction in head-end infrastructure cost and up to a 50% reduction in bandwidth costs. You can see this all for yourself by signing up for a demo at juniper.net slash sdwan dash demo. That's juniper.net slash sdwan dash demo. We thank Juniper for being a sponsor. Back to the news, Palo Alto Networks has announced the general availability of a new security operations center or SOC platform called Cortex XSIM or XSIAM, not sure how to say that. Uh, it's a cloud-based SOC. It collects logs and events from firewalls, endpoint agents, and cloud-based security services, uh, Palo Alto products, as well as third-party products from folks like Checkpoint, Cisco, CrowdStrike, and others. It also incorporates threat intelligence feeds and research from Palo Alto's Unit 42 threat analysis team. Yeah, so this is the rise of AIOps, um, which is the use of, you know, deep learning, machine learning, statistics, and you know, sometimes even artificial <coughs> intelligence to look at the logs and to make conclusions. And then what Palo Alto is extending this into is an autonomous systems operation center or security operation center. So it will actually be able to look at the data, make analysis, and then go in. I believe it'll actually go and actively 
make changes in response to threats. Is that what you had? Yes, in the briefing I got, uh, and I will say just to note, this was an opportunity, if there ever was, for a company to start slathering AI over everything. They did not. Uh, Palo Alto Networks mm. really restrained themselves, and I appreciate that. But yes, um, they, in addition to just doing the you know, threat analysis, stitching together events and alerts and so on to help you make sense of what's happening, they can also, by partnering with the, the security devices, take remediation actions like you know, blocking traffic, quarantining a device, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. So you get both analysis yeah. and remediation. Once you've got a data lake, you can pretty much put software at it. And once customers are sending the data to you, was something that was almost unimaginable 10 years ago and seemed unlikely five years ago, customers are now willing to send all of their security logs mm-hmm. to a vendor to store in the cloud mm-hmm. and give them <laughs> uh, the rights to analyze that data and to sell it back to them, which is something that I talked about. Remember we talked about that for a while? Yes, and I asked them about this. Are you getting, you know, nervous yeah. customers who are like, are you, what are you doing with this data? Then they're like, it's not really an issue from customers at this point because it's people are just used to sending stuff to the cloud. And, you know, they're, yeah, it's a multi-tenant care. organization, so, you know, yeah. the data is all logically separated and they'll encrypt it and so on. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's a sea change. There's a lesson there. I think the answer is we're all so overworked, we just don't care anymore. (laughs) Well, I think the other thing is, and Palo Alto makes a good point about this, one is that there is so much threat information coming at people, humans really just can't handle it, you know? Uh, And Mm -hmm. so the best way to do that is put it into the cloud where you can put a massive compute against it and start pulling patterns out of it, training models on it and so on. The second thing is that Mm -hmm. there is so much data coming into the system that they can start delivering results fairly quickly. It's not a long ramp up time because of that volume of data. Well, everybody faces the same threats, right? Uh, You know, somebody finds a vulnerability. Exactly. Yep. uh, You know, if a new vulnerability emerges and then the, 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 you know, the the attackers race to get it in before the vulnerability is discovered or before it's fixed or patched or whatever. So as soon as you see that, um, everybody's got the same problem. So it's not like they're doing something unique or special in the sense it's the ability to roll it out at scale across multiple networks, multiple systems, even though they're slightly divergent. Anyway, everybody's running the same, you know, basically the same firewalls, the same switches, the same packets, the same applications, more or less. Right. It's not like you're all truly divergent and unique little princesses, you know. Right. And I think they're able to take advantage of that in, in that a firewall rule is a firewall rule, whether it's a, a checkpoint to Juniper, a Cisco, or a Palo Alto, and they can take yeah. all of that data in and say, okay, we understand basically what's happening here. It comes back to models because all firewall rules get extracted from the device. They get moved into some intermediate model inside of a model that that threat system, you know, in this case, X, XSIM is using. And so one, all you need to do is build an interface to extract it. You know, that's something that we've talked about with the first of the intent-based systems that use modeling and, and has gone on to be used in all sorts of different things. So once you've got a model abstraction, you can start to just extend it into multiple firewall types. Access control, less firewall rules, it's all the same. So. Yeah. I will say, you know, I, I had a good briefing with Palo Alto about this. It sounds fantastic, but I've talked to security companies in the past where the latest product sounded fantastic and it turned out not to quite work as advertised. So fingers crossed they actually can deliver here, but we have been mm. disappointed in the past. So it's on Palo Alto to actually uh, demonstrate and prove that this works as advertised. Yeah, I would agree. But however, what we've also seen is AI ops to be quite successful in the SD-WAN and to a lesser extent in the data center space. And in the um, Wildland space, yeah. Uh-huh. The Wildland space has been particularly successful. So I think AI ops in the data center is more because of the, the blast radius. If something goes wrong, 
you could potentially, <laughs> do you know what? <laughs> yes. But, uh, right. You know, if you misprovision something using AI ops, you could just, that doesn't mean you, you can get insights in observability using artificial, you know, say uh, machine learning stuff and so forth. But I, I do feel that this is probably where we're headed. And, you know, we do have such a shortage of skills, such a shortage of people working in it, and companies just don't want to hire people to do these things. And so leaning into this just means you get to go home on time. So why not? Yep. All right. Links in the show notes if you want to read about it yourself. Uh, moving on, the White House says it's going to discuss the creation of security standards and a labeling system for consumer IoT devices. The goal is to make it easier for consumers to see which products, including consumer routers and home security cameras at the outset, meet basic security standards before bringing them into their homes. Uh, the Biden administration says it's going to bring together the private sector, industry associations, and government partners to develop this labeling system. Yeah, so I see this as a government moving into a space that industry hasn't done for itself. That is, you know, the ability for anybody to create an IoT device and not give two hoots about whether it's secure or patchable or safe or whatever mm-hmm. is something that the industry hasn't gathered around. And neither of customers, by the way. Customers right. don't care about any of this. Um, normally, you, you know, and the government has waited for a period to see if the market will regulate itself. It hasn't, so it does make sense, and we've talked extensively about at some point the government would have to move on cybersecurity, and I think this is part of the geopolitics. We talk, haven't mentioned geopolitics today. It's quite unusual. <laughs> but, you know, the, the increasing um, tensions between China and the West uh, and obviously, of course, between Russia and Ukraine means that this is becoming more and more of an issue. So this is the sort of thing that really only a government can do. There are goods and bads to this. The good part is at least it'll mandate some sort of minimum, but equally it will also create a baseline that nobody will want to do more than. Uh, so we hope that they get it right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, yes. Uh, which can happen. You know, the people involved are too busy squabbling. It's a bit like, you know, if you look at some of the standards bodies and they spend a lot of time squabbling over whether their standards can be put in. Take, for example, uh, the Wi-Fi, the IEEE Wi-Fi people, Wi-Fi 6, Wi-Fi 6E, Wi-Fi 7. There's a whole lot of companies out there who've worked really hard to get their 6E products in the market. And now the chip vendors are out there scrabbling to put Wi-Fi 7 in front of customers. And these companies haven't actually managed to sell much of their 6E inventory. It's a real problem out there at the moment. So um, if, the, if they could work together, that would be that would be nice. Yeah. Uh, my take is, you know, before I see the labeling system, I want to understand what the security standards are and the criteria for meeting them. And there hasn't been any word on what those would be. So this is still early stages. But I think the idea of a labeling system is interesting because mm. rather than tell manufacturers, you have to do this, they'll say, okay, well, you didn't do this. So you get a rating of zero, but this product gets a rating of two, which is good. Uh, and so then consumers can start to weigh in and say, well, you know, if I've got, you know, an equally priced thing, maybe I'll just buy the more secure one. We'll see if that can start to make moves mm. in the market using market forces rather than mandates. Yeah, it's it's interesting. These things can go so well and they can also go so wrong. Right. And, you know, they could, you know, what do they do? IoT security standard one through 10, you know, and does it keep moving 20, 30 as the years go by? Is it a dy- And it would have to be dynamic, I would think. And uh, it would be interesting to see what they come up with because there's so many dimensions that you could come up with this. Like, does it not have default credentials? <laughs> Which is, right. Yeah. Do, so yeah. Again, what are the standards? What do you need to meet the criteria to be a certain label? Those are key questions. Yeah. Uh, but I do think it's a good, strong signal to the IoT market that, hey, you know, maybe security shouldn't be an afterthought for these things. Mm. 
Uh, moving on, uh, we're going to finish up with a little bit of space networking. Uh, last month, Link Global, this is a startup competing in the satellite communications biz, got FCC approval to operate a satellite-based network that's going to provide cellular connectivity to ground-based smartphones and IoT devices. Yeah, lots of interesting stuff going in here. I think the smartphone to satellite, direct satellite, so no towers, isn't going to change the market all that much. And so it's it's a bit of a furphy, but there's a lot going on here. Uh, SpaceX got a lot of attention a couple of weeks ago. We covered it here on being the first to announce direct to satellite. And then a couple of weeks later, Apple announced it. Um, the SpaceX announcement was definitely premature. As we said at the time, Starlink doesn't have satellites ready, doesn't have permits to offer the service, doesn't have satellites, it doesn't have any plans to do it but it partnered up with T-Mobile to deliver it just as soon as they can work out how it's done. And so now what we have is Global Star partnered with Apple to deliver their service and Apple's just saying our customers can access it by paying a small extra fee and which they'll pass through to Global Star. So they don't need telcos to do this apparently because uh-huh. Global Star's got its own frequency bands to do this with. And now we have a company called Link Global, which has already got a pilot project, a licensed pilot project. That is, it's got the FCC approvals to run the pilot project. They've already got a submission in to launch 10 more satellites to get get coverage, uh, but it still needs to partner with someone to reach customers. They're not going to be able to go around and sign up customers directly like Apple does. And I can't help but feeling that if Apple's going to do this direct, there's not much of a market left. Well, there's the whole Android market. That's still pretty big. Yeah, well, not very valuable though. I don't know. It's at least half of the mobile phone users out there, so that's pretty valuable. Yeah, which is which is half, right? Half of the total addressable market. Uh, is half of the total addressable market, and then you also have to work with the providers. You know, the, yes. the Verizon's, the T-Mobiles of the world, et cetera. So that's a challenge for them. But half of that's still a pretty big market. I, I think that yeah, there is a play there. I, I, but it's serious. It's, I guess the point is this isn't just a two-bit company taking its, taking its chance. This company's far more advanced than SpaceX. That said, SpaceX and the Muskies are likely to get, you know. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I mean, the, the Link Global got FCC approval, but they've got one satellite in orbit so far. <laughs> so yeah, it's a they are project, well behind Starlink in but that regard. they've got planning permission in for 10 more. And, yes. You know, they're much yes. more advanced. On the other hand, SpaceX has got, you know, rockets and satellites. It's just a question of developing the satellites and the antennas and the right. software and away they go sort of thing. So who's going to be first? Yeah, it sounds like Link Global did the paperwork first and then we'll start launching satellites, whereas Starlink started launching satellites and then they're like, we should probably talk to the government about this. Well, I just think they smell money. SpaceX <laughs> is desperate for cash. Um, well, the other thing is that this company, Link Global, is using SpaceX to get its satellites into orbit. So yeah, the SpaceX sure, yeah, will launch yeah. anybody. Yep. That's why you build a rocket. That's right. Well, they built the rocket to build the rocket, and then Starlink came along as a way to monetize the rocket, yes, I suspect. I think so. But yeah. yeah. All right. As always, links in the show notes. That does wrap up the news portion of our show. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with live action. That's coming right up. The Tech Bytes podcast welcomes sponsored live action, which provides network visibility and NDR products for network engineers. We're going to get an overview of live action's portfolio and take a closer look at new security capabilities in live action's threat eye network detection and response product. Our live action guest is Russ Elsner. He is VP of product management. Uh, Russ, welcome to the podcast. And can you start us off with a brief overview of live action, what the company does? 
Yeah, absolutely. Live action focuses on network observability and network visibility. We're about visibility into your network, your enterprise, complex, multi-domain, multi-vendor, multi-cloud network to give a top-level view of everything that's happening in the network, both real-time and historically, for visibility, but also for troubleshooting. We have a bunch of different products in the portfolio, really three that we'll talk about. One is LiveNX, the next one is LiveWire, and finally, we'll finish up with ThreadEye. Okay, so let's jump right in then, the three products. Let's start with LiveNX. Uh, you mentioned network observability. What do you mean by that and what kind of uh, observability am I getting to the network and how are you getting that uh, visibility and observability? Yeah, think about it as the as the umbrella, right? It's the, I want to see the entire network from end to end, from edge to data center to cloud across the LAN in the, you know, in the branch office. I want to see the LAN, the WAN, the cloud, all those different pieces, what's happening in terms of traffic flows, application performance, where are their hotspots? Where are their alarms? What's the performance of my network right now? Is everything green and healthy or are there uh, problem spots? If there are problem spots, start drilling in and figuring out exactly what's going on and therefore how can I fix it? And how are you getting that picture? We're pulling data from a lot of different places. And in fact, in modern uh, you know, network monitoring, you have to pull from lots of different places. So uh, we take classic NetFlow data, IP fixed data from, mm-hmm. you know, from routers and switches and other network devices. Uh, we pull in, um, you know, we, we use SNMP to pull devices for performance. We take telemetry from a lot of uh, additional sources. So for example, we talk to APIs, you know, cloud vendors provide a lot of real-time data via API. Uh, SD-WAN vendors provide a lot of data via API. Uh, and we have our own uh, real-time telemetry we'll talk about a little bit later from our LiveWire product that gives very detailed granular performance information and feeds it up to LiveNX. But LiveNX takes all of this data from all these different sources, fuses it together into one holistic picture of the entire enterprise. So if I was a, a an enterprise network and I might have you know, product X in the campus and you know maybe product Y doing the, the Wi-Fi I'd have a different set of family of products in the in the data center land, and then I might have a WAN and an SD-WAN. And with each of those, I might have a vendor-provided monitoring or visibility solution that just does the campus or the data center. But if you're trying to get something that's end-to-end, it sounds like live action really has that overall view. You're a multi-vendor, multi-technology, drawing in the data that you can get and making something of it. Is that viable description? Absolutely. That's exactly the mission, is that rather than having to look at six different vendor tools or six different stovepipes of information and the human having to stitch it all together, the starting place should be this overall view that pulls all that data together into one place. Now, we're not saying that we're going to replace every tool out there. We're a starting place. We have a lot of yep. data and visibility, and we're going to lead you to the right place. You may jump over into a vendor-specific tool like a, mm. uh, you know, an SD-WAN vendor or a cloud uh, monitoring tool, mm. but we're really the place that you start that is going to lead you to that. And one of the unique things that you have is this cost monitoring where you actually monitor all of the cost capabilities of certain products, and that's where you came from, and now you've been building this solution out over the years, right? Yeah, that's actually, yeah, that's our lineage is we started with, uh, you know, QS monitoring and uh, QS policy setting and making sure that the, you know, the, you were getting what you were paying for. And that, that was really the, the original founding of the product. And that meant we had to pull data from lots of different sources. And then we had to be able to scale uh, to larger and larger environments. And so that actually, although is the seed of the product originally, it's, it is uh, transformed uh, uh, dramatically since then into an enterprise-wide visibility. A lot of our- yeah, I'd uh, say you're more observability. You're right on the edge of that 
visibility, you know, monitoring is just like up, down, red, green charts yeah. and stuff. Visibility says I'm actually seeing much more. I get the mapping and I'm monitoring a wider spectrum of devices. That's a very loose description. But on top of that, you can move into observability where you're actually starting to get, you know, really starting to bring it together. You've been around for a decade. So it's a different, it's not, it's a not, it's a mature company, not a new business. Exactly. Yeah. We've, we've been around for a while uh, and there's been a lot, there's a lot of uh, engineering in this in terms of getting to incredibly large scale. So we're, we're very, very scalable. We can handle some of the largest networks out there. Uh, mm-hmm. The complexity uh, of common enterprises, because enterprises are, are, are rarely ever single vendor, single generation. They're a combination of different technologies from different vendors yeah. and different uh, acquisitions. And so th- we tend to do better best in uh, the more complex the network is, the better we're going to wind up showing our strengths because fusing that data is really hard and showing one picture of that fused data from all those different sources, that's tricky. And that's been a lot of work and a lot of energy we put into the product to be able to do that. How am I using LiveNX? Is this uh, an appliance? Is it a server? Am I putting some hardware in my network or can I send data into a cloud repository? I'll give you a couple different answers to that, but on the on the NPM side, on the network performance side, is primarily uh, you know you would have a, a either an appliance or a VM that you host this on. Um, in fact, you know when you start getting to large networks, you would wind up having um, multiple VMs whose were, were horizontally scalable. So as you grow, you can add more um, nodes to it, uh, and that can be hosted in the cloud. In fact, we have a lot of clients that are moving their LiveNX deployment up to their Amazon uh, site, so we can we can be in the cloud or we can be on prem. Uh, and it's you know it's really the you know the customer hosts it themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. Now there are. As we get into some of the other pieces of product, we'll talk about the packet capture appliances in the LiveWire. Uh, suite. And those are either physical or virtual appliances, again, that sit there and, and take packets off the wire, uh, record them to disk, and then, you know, and do real-time analysis. So it's a, depending on the size and the use case, the, the deployments might be, you know, very concentrated, uh, or they might actually have uh, a footprint uh, across the enterprise. Okay. Uh, now, one of the things that I know organizations are grappling with, particularly when it comes to visibility or observability, is that more and more traffic, particularly inside the network, is becoming encrypted. Are mm-hmm. how, What does that mean for you? you do you go blind when uh, payloads are encrypted or traffic is encrypted? Uh, when we actually get into the thread eye piece, the question, uh, the conversation, that's actually a key founding principle of the thread eye piece is that you know we are making the assumption that eventually all traffic will and should be encrypted. And this idea of trying to break encryption or weaken encryption or fig- figure out ways around encryption is in fact a misguided approach. In fact, you know, hurts your security posture. And so uh, when we talk about thread eye, we'll, we'll specifically talk about how we're you know, with the founding principle behind that science and that technology is what can we do, assuming that everything will be encrypted? How do we still provide threat detection and threat visibility uh, in a fully encrypted world? So encryption is here. It's here to say, and it's basically something that we are aware of. And, you know, in fact, embracing the fact that everything can and should be encrypted. Okay, so that's a good teaser. But before we get to ThreadEye, let's make sure we cover LiveWire. This is your mm-hmm. packet capture capability. Yes. Yeah, so packets can be encrypted, right? In fact, a lot of them will. And so we do have the ability to decrypt older flavors of SSL. Um, and people do use that periodically. But I think longer term, you know, when you get to TLS 1.3, and you just think about the, um, you know, the complexity of decryption, we, we really just don't think that's necessarily the right way to go. You mm-hmm. still see headers, right? You still see packet and arrival times, you still see ports and protocols and things like that. So you can get a lot of rich data from packets, even in encrypted streams. Mm-hmm. And that data, that telemetry still uh, can flow up to LiveNX. 
And you know, we're we're actually we use the um, this something we call intelligent capture, which is you know if you think about capture to disk, writing packets to disk, uh, writing encrypted packets that you're never going to be able to decrypt is kind of a waste of disk space. And so it's really <laughs> smart about automatically recognizing the encrypted portion of the of the payload and not writing that to disk. So it'll write essentially it'll write the first half, you know piece of the uh, packet, uh, and then it doesn't bother committing the other bits to disk, and it saves you both. You know, perform, it adds to performance, and it saves you a lot of disk space, and ultimately adds retention time. So, they basically, the you know, our approach is, you know, there are some cases where you might want to decrypt it, but I think over time, those are going to become harder and harder, and uh, frankly, they should. Encryption is is good, and it you know, it shouldn't isn't something that should be broken generally. Okay, and LiveWire itself, again, are we talking an appliance? I presume it works off a spanner tap port, and it should have good capture capability to get data in. At line rate? Yeah, three form factors, right? So you have a physical appliance and you can add, you know, sort of an enormous physical array of disks to get high, you know, uh, uh, rate and duration. Uh, we have virtual uh, capture and we have capture in the cloud. And so we actually are seeing a kind of a uh, a push to do packet capture up in Amazon, for example. And so there's a, mm -hmm. there's a handful of customers we're working with that classically um, haven't been doing a lot of network monitoring up in the cloud. And they're, they're finding that to be a pretty bad blind spot. And so the idea of being able to, to capture packets up in Amazon and use that to troubleshoot applications and performance problems, we're actually seeing quite a bit of an uptake on uh, on that area. So it's a uh, physical, virtual and cloud-based packet capture. I think okay. the feature that stands out about Livewire is the intelligent retention, this idea that you can set up policy to retain the data and then delete unwanted data. You can actually say, I've got this amount of store, like storing data at hundred gigabits per second is actually <laughs> quite, quite a challenge, right? <laughs> sure. So yeah. just retaining the headers and writing just the headers to disk is a performance increase. But you've also got the problem of, I don't actually want to keep everything. Maybe I only want to keep it for two weeks or six weeks or some data. So this is a, a key feature too. Yeah, it's, it's being smart about what you capture. It, it is, when you think about packet capture, there is a, a little bit of an absurdity. I'm a big packet geek, you know, from, you know, from, from, from for a long time. And so I love packets. I love looking at packets, but in the end, it's kind of silly to write all these packets to disk when you're, nobody's going to look at 99.9% .9 of them. And so mm -hmm. one of the things, you know, LifeWire does, it has a, a bunch of different uh, intelligent approaches to only write the pieces of the packets that are relevant or matter, uh, or in fact, you know, not preserve ones that don't matter. And so there's a lot but of ways I can, that you can... I can, policy, I can create a policy that says, save this data for six months, but yep. keep that data for two weeks, you know, yep, and, absolutely. And, and again, save resources. Correct. So ThreadEye is the network data recorder. Now, this is something we see a lot, which is once you've got the monitoring, the visibility, the observability tools, it's, it's natural to add security. Is that what's happening here? Yeah, well, so we acquired uh, technology about a year ago. And uh, again, as I said, the, the founding principle was, uh, so net, network detection, you know, NDR is about looking at packets to see if there are threats inside them. And so it generally relies on, you know, there's a sort of a, a light version of it where it looks at flows and who's talking to who. And, you know, if you, hey, there's a terabyte of, of data that's all of a sudden going out to a Chinese IP address, um, you know, is that is that something we should look yeah, at? That, maybe, that's sort of first generation. That, yeah. Second generation is, okay, let's decode the packets and see, wait a second, this is a fingerprint inside the packet <clears throat> payload that is a known attack. And so it's doing very signature-based packet decodes. And so your classic, you know, uh, you know, fingerprinting inside packet decodes. However, that that requires decryption. And so there, you know, uh, there are you know, increasingly painful gymnastics to try to decrypt traffic in real time and try to make sure that you're not opening up a new security hole. So we've basically taken the approach that that is a doomed strategy. 
can you do useful and meaningful and, and actually sophisticated threat detection in a fully encrypted environment? And that's what NDI, that's what ThreatEye is all about. Um, and let me give you a couple examples. If you look at a packet trace, a human looked at a packet trace and said, you know, of a web page download, and then looked at somebody typing commands into a CLI in a keyboard through an SSH session, those would look fundamentally different. And a human could look at those and say, that one looks more like a web page, that one looks more like, you know, somebody typing uh, commands at a command line, right? You can tell that whether it's encrypted or not, right? But you can't do that on every single transaction, on every single packet with a human looking at everything. But that's where machine learning comes in. And so what ThreatEye does, it takes that uh, those pack, deep packet dynamics, payload, uh, payload size, inter-arrival time, directionality, ports, things like that. And it says, you know, what does this thing look like? And if all of a sudden you see a increasing amount of uh, keystrokes coming out of your web server that wasn't there a week ago, that's a fairly strong indication that that web server is being used for uh, nefarious purposes. And so now all of a sudden the machines that that web server talks to now start sending data to machines they've never talked to before. Again, that's that's a very good indication that something's wrong there. So, and we have this very, we have a, a, a great data science and a, a threat intelligence team that are essentially trained models to identify traffic that is essentially pretending to be something else mm. and masking that with encryption. That can only be done at the packet level. And so the live wire packet appliance is the perfect feed to send to that thread eye um, back end. And you mentioned, by the way, that, uh, you know, are we SaaS? Are we on-prem? Thread eye is a SaaS. So all that mm. data goes up to, uh, you know, our SaaS environment. They usually, that's, that's the way it has to be. Right. It's the underlying technology. You need a data lake, you need Artificial intelligence, you need burst processing to be able to match the models against the data set. It's, uh, it's just how it has to be, I think, for the time being. But I, I want to make sure I understand if I want to get this uh, NDR capability it's, and I've already got the live wire packet capture appliances, there's my capture appliance to get data into ThreatEye as well, right? Yep. And that's that's part of the, the, the beauty of the portfolio is that that single live wire capability can feed both network performance use cases to the NetOps team or security use cases to the SecOps team. And so, you know, we have customers that are only doing network performance and they're, they're doing classic bandwidth analysis and application performance uh, troubleshooting. Uh, we also have other customers that are using the packet piece for simply the security analysis and so securing their cloud, securing their, you know, virtual environment, their data centers, their branch offices. Um, and then we have people that are doing both, right? So it's that, that piece, that Livewire piece actually feeds up to both sides of the portfolio. And you mentioned there was intelligent retention policies in LiveWire. Can I do the same thing with ThreatEye so I'm not, you know, sending more data than I need to into the cloud? Yeah, well, it's it's really clever. The way it works is that the LiveWire does all the uh, a lot of the processing locally, right? So it's recording the packets to disk, but it's doing a lot of um, real time analytics and math. Uh, on those packets and sending up telemetry up to ThreatEye. So the packets never leave the uh, live wire appliance. They stay local. Okay. It's telemetry that's sent up in the form of you know, IP fix and, and augmented flow records that talk about um, the, you know, the packet distribution and the timeframes and sort of all we need, you know, all the all the information we need for ML is contained in that telemetry record, but it's it's essentially an augmented flow record that's being built from that packet analysis happening inside LiveWire. So it's really a two-stage system. A lot of intelligence is happening at the point of capture and the data never leaves there, which is which is good. Um, and it's really the telemetry that gets set up to the ThreatEye backend that is what 
uh, stitches everything together and, and looks at the bigger picture uh, threat correlation. Right, because I could see concerns with full packets being uploaded to a SaaS service that might make some people nervous. Yeah, I mean, beyond just you know s- sending packets up to a SaaS is just the the bandwidth. You know, why would you? Right. Know that's a huge amount of bandwidth. There's no reason. So yeah, right. the, the telemetry is a is a tiny fraction of the overall traffic rate, and it's it's really it, it leverages that machine learning. I'll, another example I can give you is um, you know if you look at again we have a, a profile of what does the PayPal website look like. And if you're getting, if somebody has been fished in your organization and goes to a fake PayPal site, that profile will look different. And so we'll all of a sudden see somebody trying to go to the fake version of PayPal and we can alert on that immediately is that that's, you know, that is a, you know, places where people, uh, you know, phishing attacks, you know, direct people to fake sites to harvest passwords and, and things like that. And that are, those are things we could recognize in real time and alert on those to the security team so they can, you know, basically stop it and it distracts. Well, Russ, we've run out of time. If folks want to find out more about live action and the whole portfolio, where should they go? Well, they can go to our website, but I would actually recommend that you know, this audience goes to liveaction.com slash packet pushers. Uh, we have a, a kind of a cool gift package up there for you. Uh, so go up to liveaction.com packet pushers slash packet pushers. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. All right. That's liveaction.com slash packet pushers. And it sounds like there's a gift waiting for you if you're interested. Uh, thank you, Russ, for joining us. And thanks to Live Action for being a sponsor. And of course, thank you for being a listener. If you like this episode, there are many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packet pushers. Hear us on Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcasts, and check out all of our instructional videos on YouTube. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.